Welcome to the School of the Forest podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Russell. This podcast aims to educate you about outdoor living skills, give you a first-person approach to wilderness ecology, and provide you with a glimpse into the different methods people are using for sustainable living. To find out more about our programs, please visit schooloftheforest.com. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the third and final part of my conversation with Bob Henderson. Bob and I pick up right where we left off and start talking about um, Arne Nas and his anti-expedition back in 1971, um, which was sort of a a really hands-on way of living out a lot of the stuff that Bob and I have been talking about throughout this whole conversation. Um, and Bob has some really cool stuff in the works to go and continue on this legacy that Arne Nas and a bunch of other really, really cool movers and shakers in the fruit sleeve world um, started back in 1971. This is probably my favorite part of our conversation just because um, it's just cool to see a lot of these ideas go out and be used in the real world um, as sort of a counterculture to the modern sort of peak bagging thing. Um, So I really enjoy the conversation. I'm really grateful to Bob for coming along for this, uh, this wild ride of a conversation that we had. And I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we've enjoyed having the conversation. Thanks and enjoy the show. So, there's sort of a, um, you know, one of the things that I have written down to talk to you about um, that is that is this this sort of this philosophy going out and doing something something sort of bigger and um, at the time and I'm sure now sort of a counterculture thing and we've been talking about this you know the the culture that we have in North America of um, you know there's this idea of like peak bagging um, and you. Um, I would love to hear about, you know, I, what I have written down is the 1971 to 2021 um, initiative that I, I believe Arna Nas and a bunch of other people were involved in. Um, so it's sort of like the literally the antithesis to peak bagging. So I'd love to hear I'd love to hear more about that because um, they, they you know, we're talking about it. They went and did something really cool with these ideas. Yeah, in fact, it was the, the uh, it was called the anti expedition, and 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 it was one of those uh, grabbers when I was uh, just learning about uh, reading. Well, when I just started reading literature, really, and it was one of those uh, grabbers where I went, "Oh my, there might be something to this Norwegian stuff," you know, <laughs> like uh, there might there might be something there. So, three guys uh, in 1971 went to Norway. They had been in 1969. In fact, uh, Arnie Ness uh, and Sigmund Crawley, uh, I believe maybe the three of them, they hitchhiked uh, to Nepal from Norway. Uh, wow. So these were, these were, I want to give you the impression that these were big trips, you know. <laughs> um, so anyway, in 71, what was happening in Nepal for context was, um, a lot of mountains that hadn't been uh, allowed access were being opened up for uh, international climbing parties because it became a cash cow for the Nepalese government and they were opening up mountains. And there was almost like a military assault. Uh, And by the way, I appreciate that um, mountain climbing and, uh, and and extreme alpine stuff, and for that matter, even in the Cairngorms in Scotland, is different than the terrain you and I live in, in the Canadian Shield and the Appalachia of Vermont, and it's a much more 
uh, gentle place to travel. Mm. So um, I think I just need to say that, but um, these guys went on an anti-expedition specifically not to climb the mountain, but they were mountaineers. So what they wanted to do was uh, climb as high as it was allowed, which by the way, <laughs> meant involves some pretty heavy duty mountaineering. Mm. Um, but they wouldn't summit the mountain because the mountain in question, which was Guri Changra in English or Charingma in uh, Nepalese, this mountain had not been climbed. And it was in the Rawaling Valley, which is one valley uh, west of the Everest Valley. When Hillary came through after his Everest climb, he went through the Rawaling Valley. And it's also a bit revered as a, a hidden land, a hidden place in the, in the Buddhist context. Okay, so they went there and rather than climb the mountain, they engaged in cultural practices, uh, Thanksgiving ritual. They spent a big chunk of time learning and being in the community. And then they asked the local um, spiritual leaders, we wanna go up. How high should we go to appease you and, and the gods, so to speak? And, and you know, there's a scene, because they made a film of this, like a handmade home movie, nothing glitzy, just homemade, you know, it's a very wonderful film, but they just sort of, you see these guys pointing, yeah, go that high. And they say, well, we'd like to take some local guys with us, which again was, would have been unheard of, you know, in the 70s. So a couple of local guys went and the idea was they, the, uh, these three Norwegians who have major climbs in their background, these Europeans would be teaching the Nepalese guys climbing techniques, but learning cultural practices. So they didn't climb the mountain and they came back and they encouraged other people not to climb the mountain. And they made a film which was on TV and they spoke and they wrote about it. And um, Arnie Ness particularly had some pieces in some pretty important mountaineering literature at the time. Um, uh, and he, mostly out of the UK. And they promoted the idea of uh, nothing, nothing against climbing but uh, uh, they wanted to create an environment that was more, now we would use the language of place responsive perhaps. Mm. So I thought this was fantastic <laughs> when I was uh, in my thirties and, and um, I never lost track of it. And as academics would want to do, um, I realized that uh, there was something really a good story there. And in, in uh, there's conferences that happen every two or three years and COVID's kind of put a, uh, washed it out, but it may come back. And the, the conference was called Thinking Mountains. And I thought I would show the 1971 film at the conference. So I acquired the film and I, I uh, through the widow of uh, Sigmund Crawley and I went to the Banff, uh, to Banff, uh, Alberta to show the film. And there was a Nepalese guy in the audience and he, oh, he wow. thought it was great. And uh, he became, he's become quite a good friend and he watched the film and somebody asked, well, um, you know, I don't quite get it. Don't, don't local people climb to the top of mountains? And he said, well, they, they do now, but in 1971, they didn't. And, but there's a Nepalese fellow in the audience. So he should address the audience. And uh, in a very freelessly kind of way, um, uh, <laughs> uh, Jigma who in question said, well, oh, we climbed, but, only as far as the yak, 
we only go to get the yak. And, and uh, it was just a great, so they, anyway, where I want to go with this is uh, Jigma suggested I should, if I wait a couple of years, it'll be 50 years since the 71 trip. And I should uh, go take the film that was made in 71 that was never actually seen by the Nepalese people in oh, the valley. Wow. And, um, and not climb, and I wouldn't have the skills to climb Chiringa anyway, but hike around the area, uh, involve myself in the community and, and bring the same spirit of the 71 guys to the ecotourism world that we live in now. So we had three pillars. One was place responsive learning to that we would showcase, which were not new to, to these 71 guys. They, this is, we were just picking up on their message and their message in our language now would have been place responsive learning, honoring local traditions, and that being the sacredness of places, mm. and, uh, and uh, seeking a more ethically grounded way of travel. And we knew as soon as we said that, we'd be exposing ourselves to all sorts of ridicule and uh, contradictions, and, sure. and, but that's all part of the game. We would, we would stay for a, you know, a longer period in a place. We would bring something to the community. Well, that, that was what we wanted to do revive the message, make a film ourselves uh, that could, and blend it with the 71 film. And then uh, this was in uh, 2018, and we were waiting till 2021 and we were hoping to get funding, et cetera. So the film, mm -hmm. the film and the trip hasn't happened because of COVID. Um, we've put it off for 2022, because you know there's still some uncertainty. I think you could go, but if you're claiming ethically grounded travel, maybe you need to wait a little longer because sure. we really need to, to, to pinpoint stuff now. So we are planning to go in 2023, but not wanting to lose the energy of the group of friends that are interested in going, who are a photographer, a filmmaker, a writer, uh, an academic, um, a, a Buddhist scholar. What we, are, what we have done is found some funding and we've generated uh, $10,000 for the next five years for the school in the Rawaling Valley. Another cool. interesting start, yeah, so the, and this is in the second year of that. So we're trying to keep the legacy of Arnie Ness, Sigmund Crawley, Settering, and, um, and Nils Farland uh, alive uh, as a 50th year tribute to their really interesting experience with identifying that perhaps we could climb mountains better. Not better sure. in a skills way, but better in a Free love sleep way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, you were talking, you mentioned uh, the, the, this friend of yours saying, um, we only go as high as the yak. And it immediately made me think of Katahdin in Maine, which is obviously a place that lots of people go to hike. Um, and they, there's the, uh, uh, my butcher, I believe it's the Abnaki have this, I, this idea of the- it, is, uh, it would have been the Abenaki there, yeah. Yeah, uh, Pomola is the the spirit of the north wind that lives on top of katahdin and they never went up and and there's something you know there's a, there's like the ethics to it but there's also this sort of practicality like why why would i go up there there's nothing you know it's not it's the realm of this god or it's just not for us and and that's such a such an unwestern way of thinking about things and i i find it fascinating to see to hear that it pops up 
in other places. I'm sure it pops up everywhere. Um, I just have not been exposed to it because I grew up in a right. Western culture. But this, yeah, and it's, it's really important for me to get out that I'm not opposed to mountaineering and climbing to the top right. and summoning mountains. Um, and they weren't either. They'd been to Pakistan five years earlier. And what, what they were on about and what I'm promoting is the notion that that was a sacred mountain that local people didn't want to be climbed. Right. Uh, and they were, they were supporting um, the notion that maybe we shouldn't be so arrogant. And just because we can doesn't mean we should. Maybe we should be more attentive to people in the, cult, the, 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 the cultures where we go. And, and there was nothing against climbing. It was, uh, it, it was more sensitivity to local place. And right. you know, it almost had an anthropological nature to it. And, and they also felt that they were learning from these people about a more sustainable way of life. So there was a bigger agenda to it. We're learning ways to be in the world that are informing, uh, informing us to be more uh, sustainable in our own practices back in Norway. We're learning things that we can bring back. So right. it, it was a big piece. And uh, when we presented it to uh, COVID had an influence on it because when we do go, we won't call it the anti-expedition uh, 1971, 2021 or 23, because the Nepalese government is, of course, and the Nepalese people rely on tourism to such an extent, extent that any anti-phraseology is problematic in a regenerating post-COVID environment. Sure. So they, we've switched our name to the Rawaling Legacy Project because really it's a legacy to the uh, Rawaling area and the people uh, that live there and the 1971 group. So we've, we've switched our name to be sensitive to the way the people would prefer it to ring now. Um, yeah. You know, I've got one more thing that comes up that I think helps me capture Freelance Leaf and, and its connection to outdoor education for people that are you know, solid educators that are listening to this, there is a tendency. And when I started, uh, um, well, I guess I started guiding trips in around 73, but when I started at the university guiding trips and thinking about really deeply about how I was guiding those trips, there, there was this notion that, that we have, and this is gonna be commonplace, that there's hard skills which are your first aid skills and your travel skills, your paddling the white water, your, your mountaineering technique and your knowledge of the gear and the knots. And then there's the soft skills, which is creating a spree decor, working in the community, developing personal social skills with, with groups. And I always bought into that, but as part of that third way that I started with, and as part of the freeless leaf notion, it always seemed um, that there was something seriously missing there. And um, what I think is missing, and I think we've moved into this in outdoor education, we haven't lost those two hard and soft skills, but there's a greater attention now to what, what I've always called, and this is, I suppose, a little typology that I came up with in thinking about free love sleep in a North American context. So beyond hard and soft skills, there's also green skills. And I'm gonna call those the being a, a naturalist or interpreter, 
Um, and that, that includes heritage too. So uh, coming to understand peoples that lived there before, uh, early Euro-Canadian or, or European uh, inroads, um, what was sort of the general indigeneity of this place and, and uh, where do salamanders reside? <laughs> you know, right. um, uh, what, are, what other practices? I was once traveling with a Norwegian and I asked him why we always take this way to the hut. I'd, I'd like to take the other way to the hut. Uh, you know, there's, there's two good trails. Why am I always doing one route and not the other route? And he said, oh, we all prefer locally to travel this one route because the animals tend to travel in the other route. That's so and, good. And so good. Now, <laughs> let's not forget that they also hunt those animals at times. So there's, there's that. But there was an attention to what the animal needs were. Right, as well as the fact that they would they would have better luck hunting if they, <laughs> but it, it right. was it, it was it was so great. But that's all part of what I mean by the green skill. Where the heck are you? What is its traditions, and what are what is the life and the ways and the patterns of the inside dwellers of that place, which is the wildlife? We are the outsiders. Right, and. Uh, so how can we learn more to, so that's all the green skill stuff. And then the final one I think is really close to the spirit of Frilos Leaf. And, you know, for lack of a better term and meta, if someone could come up with better language, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure this is the right word, but so you've got hard and soft, you've got green, and I think you've got warm skills. And, uh, and warm skills are the skills that help people meet nature in a very joyous way. Um, you know, um, Aldo Leopold had a quote that I think is the last sentence of the Sand County Almanac. I'm not sure of that, but I think it's the last sentence. And he goes, uh, when, uh, and I won't get it exactly, of course, but when, when, when culture becomes, when education and culture um, become synonymous with landlessness, you know, we're, we're in big trouble something like that. And, and yeah. um, a friend of mine, Molly Ames Baker, wrote a lovely piece where she picked up on land, landless, landlessness. Did I say landfulness? When, geez, when, <laughs> when education and culture become synonymous with landlessness, we're in trouble. That's pretty, quote, pretty close. So she created landfulness programs, landfulness programs. And really that was all uh, freelessly. And uh, warm skills are helping people feel home. And you're going to feel more at home when you're not focused on getting to the campsite by four o'clock. You're going to feel more at home um, when you're not trying to uh, uh, overcome something. There are times when getting a fire in the rain is a challenge but it, it can be presented in a joyous way. You know, when students used to say to me, how many miles have we gone today? I'd go, I don't know, you, you could grab a map and look it up. But they mm. usually didn't bother because I didn't care. Right. As the guy. So it's just a little tactic to bring a kind of warmth to the experience. And, uh, you know, when I used to hire guides, I would, I would guide these uh, trips where I was one guide, but I needed four other staff. And we had 40 students and we were all doing different routes. Um, 
I didn't hire necessarily the person with the best hard skills. Uh, I was looking for the warm skills. I was work looking for the person who really knew how to help people have a really good time. So they'd want to come back and do this again. The yeah. hard skill person might turn it into a, you know, I don't know, a military drill expedition, you know, or it, it's a matter of what you emphasize. So um, Fearless Leaf is attentive to all four of those because you, you need all four. Um, and I worry that um, uh, the one that too easily gets lost are the green and the warm. And uh, I think Fearless Leaf is, doesn't let that happen. Yeah, totally agreed. I absolutely, you know, you're talking specifically that thing about getting a fire lit in the rain. We had a trip years ago that, uh, the most rain in a day I've ever seen in Maine. Um, and we were just moving from one campsite to the other and we got there and everybody's soaked. Everybody's boat is full of water. Um, and, you know, this incredible person that I've been lucky enough to learn from Tim is a very jovial, jovial, jokey person. And quickly the, the them getting a fire in the rain became this like group building, funny thing i mean we were it was like 45 degrees we were cold um but everybody had a great time accomplishing it and as soon as it was lit they you couldn't pry that group apart with a crowbar after that they were it's so tightly that's a i've never heard it put the way you did as a, a separate skill set from soft skills but i like that a lot um i may uh i may have to start passing along the gospel of uh of warm skills after this um Awesome. Well, we're coming up on, uh, we've been chatting for a while now. Um, so, uh, I, the last couple of things I want to talk about are first, you have a, you have another, you mentioned earlier, you have another book that you're editing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I'm editing a book with a, a colleague called uh, named Sean Bleckenschlop and Sean is from, uh, Simon Fraser university. And we've been on a couple of canoe trips together and, uh, we talked about that notion that so much in what, of what we're talking about today um, that we wanted to uh, kind of re-narrativize. <laughs> we want to produce maybe a bit of a counter-narrative to the uh, competing, completing and conquering kind of uh, literature that kind of dominates a little bit. And I'm worried personally that social media has a, a factor in that, um, drawing it, the trip out of out of a, an inside view and more a view of um, uh, I've got to present myself in the future to, uh, I'm not saying this very well. Um, <laughs> the book is called Paddling Pathways, Reflections from a Changing Landscape. So we have 21 authors and uh, some of them are writing about their own personal identity with, as, a canoe, as a canoe paddler or kayak um, waterways. Um, others are writing about special communities uh, and the widening of the community of paddlers in Canada. So programs that work, for example, uh, with kids living with cancer, programs that exist for introducing canoe tripping to new immigrants. What, what, what are those things? What does that look like? So there's a section like that. Then there's a section of understanding the canoe trip uh, in terms of a decolonizing practice, which is a, a theme in Canada. Uh, um, and uh, so 
you know, there's sort of identity stories. There's also just uh, stories of, of joyous travel that when one person writes about, for example, a, a, you know, a 10 day trip where they traveled 30 kilometers or something to that effect because they were windbound for pretty much every day of the trip in the Richmond Gulf in, uh, in Northern Quebec and on Gava. And you know, those trips typically uh, don't get printed. <laughs> um, right. You know, because really what's, it, it's a, it's, she, she writes about the, the love of hiking for cloudberries in the rain, you know, uh, a berry that you only get in the North. So um, we wanted to write a book that was just going to be almost like, boy, for people to say, I've always wanted to read book, a book like this, or we wanted to reconnect with that contem content, contemplative literature that was more perhaps a present in the 70s and 60s. And um, we wanted to capture an audience that might've even said, well, I've thought this way, but I've never articulated it. And you know, one of these 21 essays is gonna hit somebody over the head and go, man, that's me, but I, I didn't, I've never articulated that way of, of being on a, on, a, on a waterway. That sounds incredible. I can't wait to get, uh, I will definitely have to get my hands on a copy of that when it comes out. Um, yeah, awesome. It'll be, it'll be spring release to capture the, the ice breaking up here. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that's, uh, I, I gotta say, I am, as much as I'm enjoying winter, I'm ready for some open water. Um, this time of year, I always get a little, a little itchy to be out paddling. Um, awesome. Well, that sounds cool. Um, so the last thing I kind of always ask guests is about a, a particular experience that you had in the outdoors that has, you know, has stuck with you, whether that's through your whole career or if it was something that happened last week, um, just anything that comes to mind that was a really compelling experience for you. Sure. Um, I'll think of something that uh, I've just written about, uh, which I hope will be in Paddling Ma Paddler Magazine in the, in the next issue or two. But um, I had an experience, I was in on the Horton River, which is a river above the tree line in the Canadian North. And I let myself get too close to a herd of muskox. And, and uh, it's amazing how much I regret that. It, it wasn't that the muskox were gonna charge or uh, all that really happened was uh, there was a, a bit of a muskox who were otherwise very placid and almost a bucolic scene enjoying uh, a, a shoreline feed. We, got a, we came to shore, got out of our canoes and approached the muskox and members of our group were far more respectful and, and, and aware of their role as an outsider. And, um, but I, even though I didn't have a camera, I wasn't after a photograph, um, I just got too close. And perhaps the lead muskox uh, let me know and let me have it with uh, a lot of huffing and puffing. And then they all left. It, it doesn't sound like much of a story. There was no you know, epic charge and me running away from my life or anything, but it just really struck me that um, I'd interfered and I didn't need to interfere. And my other friends didn't interfere and I did by moving another 40 paces or something. And um, that's in the introduction to uh, this book, Paddling Pathways, just that notion that we, uh, we should know our place. I, I suppose what I'm speaking to is um, the slow, development of a greater humility uh, 
in the travel experience. Yeah, and that's that happened about yeah about ten years ago, and it's really stayed with me. Yeah, that's a that's that's an incredible that's a again and in, in keeping with everything we've been talking about, that's a a story that other people would frame in a different place, um, and I think is telling to your your sort of outlook and all these things, which is which is great. That's amazing. Well, um, do you have anything else to add before we wrap this up? Hmm. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm satiated. <laughs> no, it's been Great. really fun. It's been really fun to, uh, to chat with you and just to let, uh, let it unfold naturally. Uh, the organic nature of this talk has been really joyful for me because uh, I don't really have notes. Uh, I, I just really respect your uh, interview style and let things just unfold. And it, it felt really natural. Like we were just two guys sitting around having a great campfire chin. Well, that's, thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's uh, I enjoyed it immensely. Like I say, your, uh, your book changed the course of how I was as an educator. So it's an absolute honor to be able to talk to you. Um, so yeah, well, thank you guys for listening. And uh, Bob, hopefully you and I run on into each other out on the out on the water at some point in the future. That'd be great. That'd be lovely. I'm a big fan of the North Forest Canoe Trail, so I have paddled the Vermont sections. Oh, I'm planning on I'm planning on doing that uh, relatively soon, or at least sections of it. So maybe we'll bump into each other at some point. Awesome. Hey, in a post-COVID environment, give me a call and I'll come down and join you for a section. Sounds great. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for thank you guys for listening and we will uh, catch you guys on the next one. You've been listening to the School of the Forest podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show and if you did, I hope you share it with a few friends. If you did like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any other of the major podcast hosting platforms. And lastly, if you'd like to learn more about School of the Forest programs, please check us out at schooloftheforest.com and get in touch with us at any of the contact information you'll find on that site. Thanks 